0: Happiness is what we aim for on the first mount. Joy is a byproduct of living on the second mount. The people who radiate a permanent joy have given themselves over to lives of deep and loving commitment. Giving has become their nature. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Philosopher Insights. Today we're discussing The Second Mountain, The Quest for a Moral Life. The author is David Brooks, and the book is published in 2019. I wanted to share a number of my favorite insights from this great book, starting with Joy versus Happiness, Moral Joy, The Valley, The Committed Life, Vocation versus Career, and Hyper Individualism. So let's begin with the introduction. Quote Every once in a while, I meet a person who radiates joy. These are people who seem to glow with an inner light. They are kind, tranquil, delighted by small pleasures, and grateful for the larger ones. These people are not perfect. They are exhausted and stressed. They make errors in judgment, but they live for others and not for themselves. They've made unshakable commitments to family, a cause, a community, or faith. They know why they were put on this earth and derive a deep satisfaction from doing what they've been called to do. Life isn't easy for these people. They've taken on the burdens of others, but they have a serenity about them, a settled resolve. They are interested in you, make you feel cherished and known, and take delight in your good. When you meet these people, you realize that joy is not just a feeling, it can be an outlook. There are temporary highs we all get after we win some victory. And then there is also this other kind of permanent joy that animates people who are not obsessed with themselves, but have given themselves away. I often find that their life has what I think of as a two-mountain shape. They got out of school, began a career, or started a family, and identified the mountain they thought they were meant to climb. I'm going to be a cop, a doctor, an entrepreneur, what have you. The goals on that first mountain are the normal goals that our culture endorses. To be a success, to be well thought of, to get invited to the right social circles, and to experience personal happiness. Then something happens. Some people get to the top of that first mountain, Taste success and find it unsatisfying. Is this all there is, they wonder? They sense there must be a deeper journey they can take. End quote. This is just a portion of the incredibly well-written introduction of the book. The introduction will have you seriously questioning your current view on success and whether life is actually more about something more gratifying, joy. The first mountain is all about building up the ego and includes all the things that society today tells us make you happy and successful. But the second mountain is about eliminating the ego and losing yourself to something bigger than just you. The second mountain is other-centered and more about contribution. Quote, the first mountain people are often cheerful, interesting, and fun to be around. They often have impressive jobs and can take you to an amazing variety of great restaurants. The second mountain people aren't averse to the pleasures of the world, but they have surpassed these pleasures in pursuit of moral joy a feeling that they have aligned their life towards some ultimate good. If they have to choose, they choose joy. End quote. Wow. I literally get chills reading the passage. Once you start climbing the second mountain, your life is no longer in pursuit of just happiness via the typical ways you are promised you will achieve it. A good paying job, a prominent degree, material possessions that adequately continue to feed your ego. David Brooks is also the author of another great book, The Road to Character, where he believed that character formation was mostly an individual task. In this book, he now believes that good character is a byproduct of giving yourself away. You lose yourself in the daily acts of serving others. Quote, So we as people and as a society have to find our second mountain. This doesn't mean rejecting the things we achieved on the first mountain. The nice job, the nice home, the pleasures of a comfortable life. Most of the time we aim too low. We walk in shoes too small for us. We spend our days shooting for a little burst of approval or some small career victory. But there's a joyful way of being that's not just a little bit better than the way we are currently living. It's a quantum leap better. End quote. I was amazed at the eloquence with which Brooks expresses his message throughout the book. So let's continue with the first big insight that is still part of the amazing introduction, the distinction between happiness and joy. Insight number one, joy versus happiness, the difference. Quote, happiness involves a victory for the self, an expansion of self. Happiness comes as we move toward our goals, when things go our way. You get a big promotion, you graduate from college. Happiness often has to do with some success, some new ability, or some heightened sensual pleasure. Joy tends to involve some transcendence of self. Joy is present when mother and baby are gazing adoringly into each other's eyes when a hiker is overwhelmed by the beauty in the woods and feels at one with nature. Joy often involves self-forgetting. Happiness is what we aim for on the first mountain. Joy is a byproduct of living on the second mountain. Brooks suggests that happiness is the correct goal for someone on the first mountain, but with the one life we are given, we need to move beyond happiness towards joy. You are always in pursuit of happiness, but joy is something that rises inside you. Happiness is generated via accomplishments, but joy in life comes from offering gifts to this world. It's very common to hear people claim they will be happy when. They get that promotion, they make X amount of money, or they can finally purchase that dream home. These are prime examples of society putting a hold on happiness for some date in the future. If X, insert event here, happens, then I'll be happy. Insight number two, moral joy. Brooks refers to moral joy as the highest level of joy. The other forms of joy discussed in the book, flow, collective effervescence, celebratory dance, emotional joy, and spiritual, can be potentially explained away by temporary changes to chemicals in the brain. This is where moral joy is different, because it can be permanent. Quote, The people who radiate a permanent joy have given themselves over to lives of deep and loving commitment. Giving has become their nature, and little by little, they have made their souls incandescent. There is always something flowing out of the interiority of our spirit. For some people, it's mostly fear or insecurity. For the people we call joyful, it's mostly gratitude, delight, and kindness. End quote. You'll have to read the book for the full details, but for now, I hope you grasp an understanding of the importance of seeking moral joy. This idea really popped out at me in the book. Insight number three, the valley. Quote, people generally go through a familiar process before they can acknowledge how comprehensive their problem is. First, they deny that there's something wrong with their life. Then they intensify their efforts to follow the old failing plan. Then they try to treat themselves with some new thrill. They have an affair, drink more, or start doing drugs. Only when all this fails do they admit that they need to change the way they think about life. End quote. I am certain you either lived this experience or know someone close to you that is suffering through this right now. It may not always lead to the severe measure of drinking or drugs, but I know plenty of people who have recognized or admitted that they are not living their best life, but they would rather follow the failing plan than risk putting the effort into a more meaningful one. Quote, This is a telos crisis. A telos crisis is defined by the fact that people in it don't know what their purpose is. When this happens, they become fragile. Nietzsche says that he who has a why to live for can endure anyhow. If you know what your purpose is, you can handle the setbacks. But when you don't know what your purpose is, any setback can lead to total collapse. End quote. The author refers to two forms of the telos crisis one, walking. In this crisis, you just keep trudging along. You take on the same setbacks and frustrations because you don't know what exactly you should change. Or how to go about figuring it out. You develop a sense of settling where you have the same job, same place, and the same life. I can honestly say I lived the experience until recently. I have known for at least 10 to 12 years that a bigger calling exists for me, but I was struggling to understand what that purpose was and I just felt paralyzed by not knowing what I could do to pursue a new direction. I have a full-time job, I have a family, and I have a full schedule. So how do you expect me to pivot in a land of uncertainty to pursue the purpose that has not been defined for me yet? This was the dialogue that kept me glued to my current situation, until I hit that moment of decision, and made the smallest effort to pursue possibilities. Now, full disclosure here, that first step led to many more failures and frustrations, but to make a long story much shorter. If I had never summoned up the courage to venture out, I would have never experienced the clarity I feel now. On the positive side, I look back at all that I've learned along the way, the connections I've made, and the habits that I've developed as a result of making the decision to pursue something more meaningful. If you find yourself in a telos crisis, my suggestion is to start taking baby steps. Start dipping your foot in the water and see what resonates. Take the action now so you don't suffer from regret at the end of your life. You'll be much more satisfied knowing you tried your best than to realize you didn't even have the courage to begin. Number two, sleeping. Quote, in this version, the sufferer is just laid low, crawls into bed, and watches Netflix. His confidence is shot. He's paralyzed by self-focus. He has that weird and unwarranted conviction that it's too late for him. Life has passed him by. Other people's accomplishments begin to bring real pain as the distance between their apparent swift ascent and his pathetic stasis begins to seem hopelessly wide. End quote. First, I feel like I've mastered this one in my lifetime. That nagging feeling that it's too late to try now. I should have awakened to these ideas when I was younger. I have learned through my experience and by reading about others, it's never too late to start. Not on something this important. Second, today we live in a society that has become experts at masking their reality. The people who have the perfect Facebook profiles, LinkedIn accounts, or are constantly boasting about their successes, are the ones that are likely the most anxious and stuck when it comes to the future. Insight number four, the committed life. Commitments build moral character. Quote, why would I spend my weekends playing golf when I could spend my weekends playing ball with my children? In my experience, people repress bad desires only when they are able to turn their attention to a better desire. When you are deep in commitment, the distinction between altruism and selfishness begins to fade away. Moral formation is not individual. It's relational. Character is not something you build sitting in a room thinking about the difference between right and wrong and about your own willpower. Character emerges from our commitments. If you want to inculcate character in someone else, teach them how to form commitments. Temporary ones in childhood, provisional ones in youth, permanent ones in adulthood. Commitments are the school for moral formation. End quote. Brooks highlights the importance of committing to four things vocation, marriage, philosophy and faith, and community. Let's take a closer look at two of the four areas of commitment. Insight number five vocation versus career. Quote The thing everybody knows about finding a vocation is that it's quite different from finding a career. When you have a career mentality, you take inventory of your talents. What are you good at? What talent has value in the marketplace? Then you invest in your abilities by getting a good education. You strategize the right route to climb upward towards success. You reap the rewards of success, respect, self-esteem, and financial security. In the vocation mentality, you're not living on the ego level of your consciousness, working because the job pays well or makes life convenient. You're down in the substrate, some activity or some injustice that is called to the deepest level of your nature and demanded an active response. I love that distinction between career and vocation. Most people believe the path to happiness and joy are building a successful career, but run the danger of realizing partway up that first mountain that life has a more substantial meaning, and that what is required for true joy is to tap into the vocation mentality. Quote, Vocations invariably have testing periods, periods when the cost outweigh the benefits, which a person must go through to reach another level of intensity. At these moments, if you were driven by a career mentality, you would quit. You are putting in more than you're getting out. But a person who has found a vocation doesn't feel she has a choice. It would be a violation of her own nature. So she pushes through when it doesn't seem to make sense. End quote. On my journey over the past two years or so, I have seen plenty of examples of people who are pursuing a vocation, but treating it like a career. They simply don't have the resolve to keep going because the results of their efforts are not showing up as per their expectations. Insight number six, community, hyper-individualism. Quote, The first mountain is the individualist worldview, which puts the desires of the ego at the center. The second mountain is what you might call the relationist worldview, which puts relation, commitment, and the desires of the heart and soul at the center. End quote. I love that passage and shifting the spotlight over to you. Where do you see yourself currently? Are you a hyper-individualist driven by your ego's desires or have you started your climb of the second mount and focused on making your life journey about serving others? It took me longer than I would have liked to discover this and the book just reinforces in my mind how vitally important it is I stay on this path. No guarantees, no monetary promise, just the day-to-day desire to serve as profoundly as I can. Quote, The core flaw of hyper-individualism is that it leads to a degradation and a pulverization of the human person. It is a system built on the egoist drives within each of us. These are self-interested drives, the desire to excel, to make a mark in the world, to rise in wealth, power, and status, to win victories and be better than others. Hyper-individualism does not emphasize and eventually does not even see the other drives, the deeper and more elusive motivations that seek connection, fusion, service, and care. These are not the desires of the ego, but the longings of the heart and soul, the yearning to surrender to a greater good. End quote. Hyper-individualists believe they are only worthy of being loved when they reach a certain status or success that the world expects of them. It is what is making the majority of our society so sensitive to the judgments of others and often quickly offended. Quote, the hyper-individualist operates by a straightforward logic. I make myself strong and I get what I want. The relationist says, life operates by an inverse logic. I possess only when I give. I lose myself to find myself. When I surrender to something great, that's when I'm strongest and most powerful. End quote. This passage reminds me of one of the greatest quotes by legendary philosopher Zig Ziglar. Quote, you can have everything you want in life if you just help enough other people get what they want. End quote. We are born with an ego and a heart and a soul, but today's society teaches us to swell our ego and diminish our heart and soul. This is why most people discover later in life that something was missing while they pursued their self-focused life. That concludes the insights I wanted to share from this amazingly well-written book. It's honestly one of the more difficult ones to select my favorite insights from, and this book is packed with eye-opening wisdom. You've been listening to Philosophy Insights with your host, Herb Lambeth. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To go deeper with me, you can register for free at www.philosopherinsights.com for instant access to a growing library of Philosopher Insights, which are 8-10 to page PDFs, plus 20-minute MP3s that break down my favorite insights from the world's best personal development books. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Facebook at Optimal Herb. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.